Chapter twenty eight of Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Craster. Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty by Imbert de Saint Amand. Translated by Elizabeth G. Martin. Chapter twenty eight. The morning of August tenth. The fatal day began. It was five o'clock in the morning. The queen made her children rise, lest the swords of the insurgents should surprise them in their beds. The dauphin, unaccustomed to being called so early, stared with surprise at the spectacle presented by the court and garden. Mamma, said he, why should any one harm papa? He is so good. Then turning to a little girl who was his usual companion in his games, he addressed her these words, which prove how well, in spite of his age, he knew the peril he was in. Here, Josephine, Take this lock of my hair, and promise to wear it as long as I am in danger. Led by their chief, Marshal de Mailly, an old man of eighty-six, the two hundred noblemen who had assembled in the gallery of Diana passed in review before the royal family with those of the National Guards who were royalists. Sire, exclaimed the old marshal, bending his knee, here are your faithful nobles who have hastened to re-establish your majesty on the throne of your ancestors. For this once, responded Louis the Sixteenth. I consent that my friends should defend me. We will perish or save ourselves together. The last defenders of the throne shed tears of fidelity and tenderness. They kneeled before Marie Antoinette and entreated the honor of kissing her hand. Never had the queen appeared more gracious and majestic. The National Guards, enchanted, loaded their arms with transport. The queen seized the Dauphin in her arms and held him above their heads like a living standard. The young men shouted, long live the king of our fathers and the old men cried long live the king of our children at the gates of the tuileries the tide was rising vanguards of the insurrection the marseillais arrived unhindered the municipality had succeeded in removing the cannons which were to have prevented approach by way of the pont neuf and the pont royal mandat was no longer there to issue orders nothing impeded the march of the faubourgs and yet resistance might still have been possible it is Babarou, the fierce revolutionist himself, who says so. All the faults committed by the insurrection, the wretched arrangement of the attacking party, the terror of some and the ignorance of others, the forces at the palace, all made the victory of the court certain. If the king had not left his post, if he had shown himself on horseback, a large majority of the people of Paris would have pronounced for him. Napoleon, who was an eyewitness, had said the night before to Pozzo di Borgo, that with two battalions of swiss and some cavalry he would undertake to give the rioters a lesson they would remember in the evening of august tenth he wrote to his brother joseph according to what i saw of the temper of the crowd in the morning if louis the sixteenth had mounted a horse he would have gained the victory very few of the insurgents were seriously determined on a revolt most of them marched blindly not knowing and not even asking whether they went westerman had been obliged to threaten Santerre and even put his sword against his breast in order to induce him to march. A great number of the people of the Faubourgs, uneasy as to the result of the enterprise, said that, considering the preparations made by the palace, it would be better to defer the matter to another day. The unarmed crowd followed through mere curiosity, and were ready to take flight at the first discharge of musketry. According to Count de Vaublanc, the Swiss, if they had been commanded by a good officer from four o'clock in the morning, would have sufficed to disperse the multitude as they came up and possibly might have won the day for the king without bloodshed 
thus the best of princes rendered useless the courage of his defenders and to spare the blood of his enemies accomplished the ruin of his friends all his virtues turned against him and brought him to his ruin Monsieur de vaublanc says again in his memoirs at six in the morning those who were in revolt had not yet assembled how much time had been lost how much was still to be lost it was too evident that no military judgment had presided over the strange disposition of troops so placed within and without the palace as to be unable to give each other mutual support a military man knows too well the value of the briefest moments he knows too well how quickly victory can be decided by attacking the flank of a multitude with a small number of brave men if the king had appointed one of the generals near him absolute master of operations no doubt this general would have given the rebels no time to unite alas louis the sixteenth had three times more courage than was necessary to conquer but he knew not how to avail himself of it such was also the opinion of mr thiers who in his histoire de la revolution francaise says it must be repeated the unfortunate prince feared nothing for himself he had in fact refused to wear a wadded vest as he had done on july fourteenth saying that on a day of combat he ought to be as much exposed as the least of his servants courage did not fail him then and afterwards he displayed a bravery that was noble and elevated enough but he lacked the boldness to take the offensive it is certain as has been frequently said that if he had mounted a horse and charged at the head of his troops the insurrection would have been put down towards six o'clock the king went out on the balcony he was saluted with acclamation then he went down the great staircase with the queen to inspect the troops stationed in the courtyards as one of his gentlemen of the chamber emmanuel aubier has remarked he had never made war himself during his reign there had never been a war on the continent he was so unfortunate as to be wanting in grace even awkward and to look thoughtful rather than energetic a thing displeasing to french soldiers instead of putting on a uniform and mounting a horse he wore a purple coat of the shade used in mourning for kings on this fatal day when he was to wear mourning for the monarchy unspurred unbooted shod as if for a drawing-room with white silk stockings his hat under his arm his hair out of curl and badly powdered there was nothing martial nothing royal about him at this hour when what was needed was the attitude and the fire of a king henry the fourth he looked like an honest country gentleman talking with his farmers the first condition of inspiring confidence is to possess it louis the sixteenth's aspect was much more that of a victim than a sovereign the cries of long live the king which would have been enthusiastic for a prince ready to battle for his rights and reconquer his realm at the sword's point were few and sad after having inspected the troops in the court louis the sixteenth decided to inspect those in the garden too the queen returned to the palace and he continued his rounds the royal national guards comprising the companies of the petit pere and the fils saint thomas were drawn up on the terrace between the palace and the garden they received the king sympathetically and advised him to continue his inspection as far as the place louis XV. at this moment a battalion of the national guards from the saint marceau section defiled before him uttering shouts of hatred and fury louis the sixteenth was undisturbed by this he remained calm and when this battalion had got into position he tranquilly reviewed it then he walked on again and crossed the entire garden the battalion of the croix rouge which was on the terrace beside the water cried from a distance down with the veto down with the traitor on the terrace of the feuillon at the other side there was an equally violent crowd the king calm as ever went on to the swing bridge by which the tuileries was entered from place louis XV. 
he was well enough received by the troops stationed there. But his return to the palace could not but be difficult. The National Guards of the Croix Rouge had broken rank and come down from the terrace beside the river to the garden and pressed around the king with menacing shouts. The unfortunate monarch could only re-enter the palace where he had but a few moments more to stay, by calling to his aid a double row of faithful grenadiers. The ministers who were at the windows became alarmed. One of them, Monsieur de Bouchage, cried, Great God, it is the king they are hooting. What the devil are they doing down there? Quick, we must go after him. And he hastened to descend into the garden with his colleague, Bigot de Saint-Croix, to meet his master. The queen, who beheld the sight, shed tears. The two ministers brought back Louis the Sixteenth. He came in out of breath and fatigued by the heat and the exercise he had taken, but otherwise seeming very little moved. All is lost, said the queen. This review has done more harm than good. From this moment bad tidings succeeded each other without interruption. They were apprised of the formation of the new commune, Mondar's murder, the march of the Faubourg, and the arrival of the first detachment of rioters. The Marseillais debouched into the carousel and sent an envoy to demand that the gate of the royal court should be opened. As it remained closed, they knocked on it with repeated blows, while the National Guards said, We will not fire on our brothers. Would resistance have been possible even at this moment, that is to say, between seven and eight in the morning? Monsieur de Vaublanc thought so. I do not know, he writes, to what section the first band that arrived on the carousel belonged. It was in disorder and badly armed. If the king had marched toward his troop at the head of a battalion of the National Guard, if he had pronounced these words, I am your king, I order you to lay down your arms, the success would have been decided. The flight of a single battalion of rebels would have sufficed to frighten and disperse the others, even before they were formed into line. It was at this time that Roderet, instead of counselling resistance, implored Louis the Sixteenth to seek shelter in the assembly for the royal family. Sire, he said in an urgent tone, your majesty has not five minutes to lose. There is no safety for you except in the National Assembly. In the opinion of the department, it is necessary to go there without delay. There are not men enough in the courtyards to defend the palace, nor are they perfectly well disposed. On the mere recommendation to be on the defensive, the cannoneers have already unloaded their cannons. But, said the king, I did not see many persons on the carousel. Sire, returned Roderet, there are a dozen pieces of artillery, and an immense crowd is arriving from the Faubourgs. The idea of a flight before the insurrection revolted the Queen's pride. What are you saying, sir? cried she. You are proposing that we should seek shelter with our most cruel persecutors. Never, never. I will be nailed to these walls before I consent to leave them. Sir, we have troops. Madame, all Paris is on the march. Resistance is impossible. Will you cause the massacre of the king, your children, and your servants? Louis the Sixteenth, still hesitating, Roderet vehemently insisted. Sire, said he, time presses. This is no longer an entreaty, nor even a counsel we take the liberty of offering you. There is only one thing left for us to do now, and we ask your permission to take you away. The king looked fixedly at his interlocutor for several seconds. Then turning to the queen, he said, Let us go, and rose to his feet. Madame Elizabeth said, Monsieur Roderet, do you answer for the king's life? Yes, madame, with my own, responded the communal attorney. Then turning to the king, sire, said he, I ask your majesty not to take any of your court with you, but to have no cortege but the department and no escort except the National Guard. Yes, replied the king, there is nothing but that to say. The minister of justice exclaimed, 
the ministers will follow the king. Yes, they have a place in the assembly. And Madame de Tourzel, my children's governess, said the queen. Yes, madame, she will accompany you. Roderet then left the king's chamber, where this conversation had taken place, and said in a loud voice to the persons crowding together in the council hall, The king and his family are going to the assembly, without other attendance than the department, the ministers, and a guard. Then he said, Is the officer who commands the guard here? This officer presenting himself, he said to him, You must bring forward a double file of national guards to accompany the king. The king desires it. The officer replied, It shall be done. Louis the Sixteenth came out of his chamber with his family. He waited several minutes in the hall until the guard should arrive, and going around the circle composed of some forty or fifty persons belonging to his court. Come, gentlemen, said he, there is nothing more to do here. The queen, turning to Madame Campan, said, Wait in my apartment. I will rejoin you, or else send word to go. I don't know where. Marie Antoinette took no one with her except the Princess de Lambaye and Madame de Tourzel. The Princess de Torrent and Madame de la Roche-Aimont, afflicted at the thought of being left at the Tuileries, went down with all the other ladies to the Queen's apartments on the ground floor. La Chesnaye, who had succeeded to the command of the National Guard in consequence of Mandat's death, put himself at the head of the escort. This was formed of detachments from the most loyal battalions, the Petit Père, the Suite de Moulin, and the Fille Saint-Thomas, reinforced by about two hundred Swiss, commanded by the colonel of the regiment, Marquis de Maillardoz, and the major, Baron de Bachmann. The cortege reached the great staircase by way of the council hall, the royal bedchamber, the Oeil de Boeuf, the hall of the guards, and the hall of the hundred Swiss. As he was passing through the Oeil de Boeuf, Louis the Sixteenth took the hat of the National Guard on his right and placed it on his own, which was adorned with white feathers. The guard's surprise removed the king's hat from his head and carried it under his arm. When Louis the Sixteenth arrived at the foot of the stairs in the pavilion of the Horloge, his thoughts recurred to the faithful adherents who had so uselessly devoted themselves to his defence, and whom he was leaving at the Tuileries without watchword or direction. What is going to become of all those who have stayed upstairs? said he. Sire, said Roderet, it seems to me that they were all in coloured coats. Those who have swords need only lay them off, follow you, and go out through the garden. That is true, returned Louis the Sixteenth. In the vestibule a little further on, as he was about to quit the fatal palace which fate had condemned him never to re-enter, he had at last a moment of scruple and hesitation. He said again, But after all, there are not many people on the carousel. True, sire, replied Roderet, but the faubourgs will soon arrive, and all the sections are armed and have assembled at the municipality. Besides, there are neither men enough here, nor are they determined enough to resist the actual gathering on the carousel, which has twelve pieces of artillery. The die is cast. Louis the Sixteenth abandoned the Tuileries. Respect alone restrains the grief and indignation that move the Swiss soldiers and the noblemen whose weapons and whose blood have been refused. They look down from the windows at the cortege, or better, the funeral procession of royalty. It was about seven o'clock in the morning. The escort was drawn up in two lines. The members of the department formed a circle around the royal family. Roderet walked first. Then came the king, with Bigot de Saint-Croix, Minister of Foreign Affairs, at his side. The Queen followed, giving her left arm to Monsieur de Bourgage, Minister of Marine, and her right hand to the Dauphin, who held Madame de Tourzel with the other. Then Madame Royale and Madame Elisabeth, with the Jolie, Minister of Justice, and the Minister of War, d'Abancourt, leading the Princess de Lambaye, the Ministers of the Interior and of Taxes, Champion de Villeneuve, 
and le rue de la ville closed the procession the air was pure and the morning radiant the sun lighted up the garden the marble sculpture and the sheets of water birds sang under the trees and nature smiled on this day of mourning as if it were a festival looking at the populace madame elizabeth said all those people have gone astray i should like them to be converted i should not like them to be punished tears stood in the eyes of the little madame royale the princess de lamballe said mournfully we shall never return to the tuileries the prince de poix the duke de choiseul counts d'ossonville the vermenil the evilly the pont l'abbé the marquis de Briges, chevalier de fleurieux viscount de saint priest the marquis de natouillet messieurs de Fresnes and de salagnac the queen's equerries and saint pardou the equerry of madame elizabeth followed the sad procession they passed through the grand alley unobstructed as far as the parterre then turned to the right toward the alley of the chestnut trees there a halt of some minutes occurred in order to give time for warning the assembly louis the sixteenth looked down at a heap of dead leaves which had been swept up by the gardeners after a storm the night before there are a good many leaves said the king they are falling early this year it was only a few days before that manuel had written in a journal that the king would not last until the falling of the leaves perhaps louis the sixteenth remembered the prophecy of the revolutionists the dauphin with a carelessness belonging to his age amused himself by kicking about the dead leaves the leaves that had fallen as his father's crown was falling at this moment before the royal family could enter the assembly chamber it was necessary that the step the king had taken should be announced to the deputies the president of the department undertook this commission a deputation of twenty-four members was at once sent to meet louis the sixteenth they found him in the large alley at the foot of the terrace of the Feuillant, a few steps from the staircase leading up to it and which goes as far as the lobby through which one enters the hall occupied by the national assembly sire said the leader of the deputation the assembly eager to contribute to your safety offers to you and your family an asylum in its midst during this time the terrace and the staircase had become thronged by a furious crowd a man carrying a long pole cried out in rage no no they shall not enter the assembly they are the cause of all our troubles this must be ended down with them roderet standing on the fourth step of the staircase cried citizens i demand silence in the name of the law you seem disposed to prevent the king and his family from entering the national assembly you are not justified in opposing it the king has a place there in virtue of the constitution and though his family has none legally they have just been authorized by a decree to go there here are the deputies sent to meet the king they will attest the existence of this decree the deputies confirmed his words nevertheless the crowd still hesitated to leave the way clear the man with the pole kept on brandishing it and crying down with them down with them roderet going on to the terrace snatched the pole and flung it into the garden the crowd was so compact that in the midst of the squabble someone stole the queen's watch and her purse a man with a sinister face approached the dauphin took him from marie antoinette and lifted him in his arms the queen uttered a cry do not be frightened said the man i will do him no harm another person said to louis the sixteenth sire we are honest men but we are not willing to be betrayed any longer be a good citizen and don't forget to drive away your shavelings and your wife insults and threats resounded from all sides finally after an actual struggle the royal family succeeded in opening a passage they made their way with difficulty through the narrow lobby choked with people penetrated the crowd and entered the session chamber 
it was there that royalty humiliated and overcome was to lie at the point of death under the eyes of its implacable enemies end of chapter twenty eight read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama